I'm here today with Marilyn Capon. She's a partner at Bovis Kyle Birch and Medlin, and she's also a professor of criminal law and ethics of law at Georgia State University. This is Boss Ladies. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career journey and sort of how you got where you are today? I can. I think that what's probably most interesting in my career journey is that I've gotten to do the things that I wanted to do. And I really mean starting with as a child. When I was a kid, I thought one day I want to be a magazine editor. I was a magazine editor in around 1996. And when I was 11 years old, I thought one day I want to be a lawyer and I am a lawyer. So I think what's interesting when I look back is that I became the things I wanted to become. That's one thing that struck me recently. What happened in my journey is that I have vacillated in and out of the law. I started in law uh, in an area of the law that I didn't really like which was construction law. And I didn't care if I ever practiced law again after that experience. So I (laughs) left law and I went into the corporate world and that's where I did a lot of marketing. And uh, eventually I left that to become an editor of a magazine, like I said. And uh, I also owned a business. So I have done different things. Well, I was pulled back into the law by somebody who knew me from way back when. And so now I am both a adjunct professor at Georgia State teaching a couple of law classes, and I am a partner at the law firm, like you mentioned. Very cool. And can you tell us a little bit about the special area in which you practice? I practice solely in family law, and it is interesting to say it as an understatement. Um, The partner who brought me back to the firm after so many years told me, you were going to love family law. And (laughs) he was right. He was right. I love family law. And the funny thing about family law, uh, which is a very true statement, there's a statement in the law that family law and criminal law are opposite sides of the same coin. And that's because in criminal law, people are bad acting good. In family law, people are good acting badly. (laughs) And I find that to be so true. Very interesting. One of the reasons I love family law is every case is interesting. And there's never a dull moment. And I've also laughed at what people do to each other. I've had so many cases where uh, if one of the partners in the marriage found out that there was an affair on their bed, actually threw the mattress on the front lawn and set it on fire. I have more than one case like that. More than one. So (laughs) it is so interesting. People throw their husband's clothes out the second floor window and spread them on the lawn. People set mattresses on fire because I can no longer sleep on this mattress now that I know that you had an affair on this mattress. Everything is so interesting in family law and largely it's because of people acting badly, like I said. 
Um, I'll never forget one of my cases where um, a New York woman named Tracy called me up in the middle of the case and she said, Marilyn, you're not going to be happy with me. And I said, what'd you do, Tracy? (laughs) And she said, well, I just want to start with you're not going to be happy with me. I said, what'd you do, Tracy? And she said, well, first I want to tell you that Scott threw cottage cheese at me. And I said, what did you do, Tracy? (laughs) And she said, well, as he was pulling off the driveway in his car, I threw a brick at his windshield. And so I had to say, Tracy, you hear the difference between cottage cheese and a brick. Do you hear the difference? Uh, Because the judge is going to hear the difference between those two. Those are just pieces of reality that I deal with every day. People's emotions um, are high. And I think that one of the benefits for me, of course, is that I'm outside of the fishbowl. They're enduring the emotions. I am outside of the fishbowl looking in. And I think the benefit they have in hiring me is that clarity. I'm thinking clearly, I'm outside looking in, and I'm not involved in the emotions. I'm thinking clearly for them because they are not. And so if they move along with my advice, they usually do well. Yeah. And how do you stay neutral in those situations? And and have you ever had a client who maybe you don't necessarily agree with? Like, how do you balance that? Yes. Yes. <laughs> there are times where there's a client you don't agree with, or you don't agree with their goal, or you don't think they're going to win with what they have as facts, but want. For example, if you have a dad who works all the time, travels all the time, but he wants primary custody. That's probably not going to happen. They're not available to the children unless, of course, there's something radically wrong with the mother. Um, And vice versa, that also occurs. I have a case right now where the mother is the worker bee and the higher income earner. And the dad is the person at home and more amenable and available to the children So the opposite occurs. I feel that he has a chance at getting primary custody. But when it's a situation like you said, and somebody might have a goal that's unrealistic to me, you just have to be honest. You just have to say, listen, I'm going to tell you what matters with the courts. The likelihood is you're not going to win this. And I'm very much somebody who doesn't want to waste time and money. I'm not going to argue for something and spend your money for something that all all the markers show you're not going to get it. Right. No, that makes a ton of sense. And that's super interesting. Um, how do you balance like ego in this, right? Because I'm sure that's a big part of it is on both sides. You're you're representing one person, right? They have their own ego. You're rep- You're going against someone else. They have their own ego and their own attorney. How do you keep that in check? In my years of experience, I have found the opposing counsel, the the lawyer that the opposing party retains, to be the most indicative factor in how difficult the case is going to end up being. Uh, It's our first question when somebody retains me is, who's on the other side? Because 
I get to know who's going to elongate cases, who's going to make an expensive case, who's going to be reasonable, who's going to get this over quickly. And it's often not determined by the parties. It's not determined by mom or dad. And I've really learned that over the years. So how, I have to ask this, obviously, this is a podcast about female empowerment and and career development. Has gender ever played a role for you? Like, do you find that in law school or now actually practicing that there have been either positives or negatives because of you and your gender as a lawyer? Yeah, it's interesting that you asked that question today because I had a client today who said, I'm hiring you because you're a woman. I want to let you know that. I think I need female counsel in my case and that it will work better to talk with my wife and her attorney. He said, I want somebody strong and I want somebody aggressive and who's going to be a pit bull, but I want it to be female. And I thought that was interesting that he specifically asked for that. That is very interesting. And and how how did you feel about that? Were you Do you agree with that or was that more, did it come off as offensive in some way? It did not come off as offensive because he knew he wanted somebody aggressive and Mm -hmm. female and that is possible. I don't think there is any offense to that. I think it's a compliment that he felt I was both. So I'm good with what he wants and can be who he wants to be. He wants me to be. I have a question around staying balanced in your own life when you're around so much discord. What's that like? And how do you see all this emotion and all these things happening and then go home and forget it and take a step back and resume your, your own personal life without that? Yeah. Great question, Olivia, because when I started practicing just family law 16 years ago, What my husband laughs about weekly is how much I appreciate our marriage now that I've seen so many other crazy marriages. And like I said, the crazy things that people do to each other. He feels more appreciated. He says, look, I'm not that crazy. Look, (laughs) I don't do that. And it does. It really, in all honesty, it does make me appreciate my marriage and him more when I see how some crazy people act to each other. Yeah, absolutely. And even, I mean, can you talk to me a little bit about what the past year has been like? You said that, you know, when COVID hit, everyone was like, I need a divorce right now. What was that like? That was true. When March 11th hit, which is when Atlanta pretty much shut down around that time. Uh, And our office closed and I packed up all my bags and went over to my home office to work from that point forward, which is where I am right now. Uh, At that point, what I noticed was not in March or April, but come May, after two months of everybody being quarantined with their spouses, around May, I had call after call of the exact same question, which was, Marilyn, how fast can you get this done? Marilyn, how fast can you get this done? And I found that so interesting. I do think, Olivia, that it's tapered off now. People have found a way to live uh, that closely with their spouse over time. But in the first three months, it was a bit much. Do you think there are positives for living that closely with your spouse right now? I mean, do you think that 
this will lead to more lasting relationships in some ways? I, I do. I think in some cases, I have heard that, that uh, some people are finding, wow, I'm really learning more about my spouse now. And it's a good thing that we are clammed up with each other. And it's not so bad. And I kind of like it. And it's okay. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. So I want to jump topics a little bit, and I'm going to phrase this in sort of an unusual way because I heard someone ask our general counsel at my last company this question, and I thought it was very interesting. So if you were in the lawyer Olympics, what would your strong suit be? Where would you win that gold medal? Would it be yelling across the tables or writing contracts or negotiations? Yes, it would be easy for me. It would be mediations and negotiations. I think that was a skill I had even as a child. I, I don't think it's something that I developed. I think it's something I had. I've always known how to negotiate, how to bargain, how to haggle for an item at a flea market. I've always <laughs> known how to do that instinctually. And I think that it has helped me as a lawyer uh, because I know when to agree to something. I know when to say no. I know when to walk out of a mediation because we're done um, and be hardline about it. And I do that every day. You, you know when to stay. You know when to go. And I would say that's my um, special superpower. I love it. So can you walk me a little bit through your approach when, when going into a negotiation and, and mediation? Sure, sure. I think a general rule, and I think most people know this rule, but in a negotiation, when you're trying to get a settlement agreement, you generally want to hear the other side's offer first. You'd rather be the responder to the initial offer than the creator of the initial offer, because sometimes you're surprised by the initial offer. It might be higher than you were going to offer, and so it's a good thing you heard it first because you're going to accept. <laughs> if it's lower than you were planning, you can always go higher or lower from there, but you know what to do. So that is probably the number one rule in negotiations is listen to the offer. Don't make the first offer. Uh, I also think that you have to be reasonable. You can't fight tooth and nail on every last issue. You need to isolate the most important issues for your client. So in my world, if custody is more important to my dad than money, and he's willing to offer a little bit more money to get 50-50 custody because that's what concerns him, you know, you have to know what are your bargaining chips. So that's another point I would say, know your bargaining chips. And how do you balance your emotions through all of this? Well, again, because I'm on the outside of the fishbowl and not in it, I'm not in that emotional turmoil. And like I said, I think clearly for my client, and that's the benefit that I provide to them as long as they listen to me. And sometimes people don't listen to you. They are too involved in their emotions. And they say, you know, I know that you advised me to do that, but I've decided to do this. And more often than not, Olivia, I will hear back from that client in six months with an email that says, I should have listened to you. <laughs> and that has happened over and over to those people where they let their emotions run their decision 
and not the facts run their decision, which is what I'm trying to get them to do. And what's the best way you can do that? Like when you, you like, how does, I guess, honestly, from an outsider, I don't even know how this process would work, right? Like, do you start by sitting down with your client, you hear them out, then you prepare stuff, you go back to them, then you like, when does it go to court? Can you sort of walk me through what, and maybe if it is, yeah, if they are typical, like what a typical case would look like. Sure, sure. We certainly start with a one hour with the client and we listen. We largely just get the facts, tell us everything that's going on. We do an intake. And after that first meeting, we set a retainer. We say, okay, because of the facts you've given us, it's going to be this high or this low. If there is a business that they're going to split, it's going to be higher. If there is a huge custody argument, it's going to be higher. If they fairly agree on the split of assets and what type of custody they're both going to have, it's going to be lower. Facts in that first meeting largely will tell what the retainer price will be. And of course, sometimes it ends up being a little bit higher than a retainer, and sometimes it ends up being a little bit lower, and then we refund the money because we didn't need the whole retainer. But after the retainer is set, um, I do like to start talking to opposing counsel right away, and you always start with honey and not with vinegar. You always do. That's another (laughs) rule of mine. Uh, You only do vinegar if vinegar is given to you. You you attract more bees with honey. And so we generally say, hi, opposing counsel, John Doe, um, it's a pleasure to meet you. And I look forward to working with you on this case. And if you sense a reaction that is very aggressive and I'm going to make this difficult for you, then I change my mode and I make it difficult too. So... (laughs) It really, it depends on what reaction I get back. Hopefully it's a honey reaction back. And I would say in probably at least 60 or 70% of cases, it is honey back. And so at that point, we just keep a conversation going and we talk about the nitty gritty and the uh, marital estate that's going to be divided. We keep collecting all that information. And then ultimately we go to that mediation that I was mentioning just earlier and try to reach an agreement in a mediation setting. And the benefit of that is that the husband and wife are in different rooms uh, and only the mediator walks room to room. So they feel good that they're away from the other party. They don't have to see that person's face and that they can make a clearer decision uh, for themselves with just them and their attorney in the room. And so we always insist on that. And then we try to come to an agreement. And in all honesty, about 85 to 90% of our cases resolve in a mediation setting. Uh, And then in the last 10 or 15% that don't, they go to trial. Right. Interesting. I love picturing sort of like the honey and vinegar side of the boss lady, right? Like, which one are you going to use? (laughs) That's right. You start with honey and then you determine if it needs to change. (laughs) That's great. And what led you, like, what got you interested in in teaching and, and being a professor? You know, I wanted to be a professor. Like I said, everything, everything started as a kid. I thought when I was a kid in eighth grade, I would love to teach. I would love to be a professor. And when I was in my younger years, I was named most likely to become a professor by my class. That's so interesting. 
I don't know what that means, right? What, <laughs> what do your eighth grade friends see in you that maybe you don't even see in you at that point? But um, I knew I wanted to teach. I love interaction with the students and the mental stimulation I get from them and the back and forth conversations. For example, I teach criminal law and there are a lot of what if scenarios that come mm-hmm. up in criminal law, like well, if he had been wearing a black jacket, what if he had been wearing a black jacket and a mask? What if he wasn't wearing a mask? And they they come up with a hundred what if scenarios and they want to hear the answer of what would a jury do? What would a judge do if mm-hmm. this fact changed, if this fact changed? And I find it really interesting uh being a professor with them, because it forces me to think too. They're asking me some challenging questions that I have to cull from my 30 years of experience since I went to law school and have been in courtrooms and worked with judges. And I, I have to think through their questions. And I think, okay, well, if he was wearing a black jacket and a black mask, yes, his situation would be more dire because he was trying to not disclose himself. And so I have to talk through that. So I love teaching just from the stimulation I get from the students. That sounds amazing and super interesting. And it sounds like it, it causes you to think about new problems and, and new scenarios. So that's very cool. Oh, all the time, all the time. And they will raise something that I've never thought about. And I will say, that's a good question. Sometimes somebody will raise their hand and say, Professor Capon, Professor Capon, what is this? And I will say, I do not know, but guess what your homework is tonight? You're going to find <laughs> out and you're going to report back to the class on Monday what the answer to your question was. Oh, that's awesome. What's the balance like of teaching criminal law, but obviously practicing family law? I think it's uh, very fun. And like I said earlier, it's two sides of the same coin anyway. So mm-hmm. that makes it they're, they're both very interesting. When I went to law school, I actually liked my criminal law classes the most, even more than family law, to be honest. I loved criminal law and I took every criminal law class that I could sign up for. And, and again, it's because every story and every case in crime is interesting. And, and that what I learned later is that, wow, every family law case is also really interesting. So I love that I get to be in the world of both of them. I think that's amazing. And I want to jump topics again, just in the interest of time and talk a little bit about being a mom, right? And raising a boss lady. I'm I'm fortunate enough to be friends with your daughter and she is yeah. totally a boss lady. She's at Columbia totally. Business School right now. She's crushing yeah. it. What is it like raising a boss lady and also being a boss lady at the same time? Well, I have to tell you that I knew she was going to be a boss lady pretty much when she came out of the womb. <laughs> uh, this was not something developed over time. This was something innate in her It is her natural person. She has always been a leader. She has always been strong. And it's come across in many ways during her life, whether it was in grade school or whether it was in high school or whether it was in college or whether it was in business school. She's really confident. And in fact, I'll tell you a really funny story. The day that I knew how strong she was, She was four years old and we were on a cruise and 
she overheard the cruise director and some passengers talking about a talent show (laughs) and that there was a talent show that the passengers could be in. And she, little Camille, four years old, pulls on my arm and she says, mommy, why aren't I in that talent show? (laughs) And I'm looking down at her and I'm saying, sweetie, what is it that you want to do? And she says, I want to sing Percy the Pale Face Polar Bear. And I said, okay. And she said, will you tell the cruise director that I want to be in it? And I said, okay, but you do understand that there will be about 750 people in the audience. And she says, I know that's why I want to do it. (laughs) I love that. I thought, oh my gosh, this girl has so much confidence and so much strength and a big crowd and audience doesn't deter her. It attracts her. And I thought, what do I have on my hands? (laughs) And that has just come true over and over. She has been a public speaker naturally, um, never been swayed by any sort of anxiety in that area. Uh, Mm -hmm. It just comes naturally. It's who she is. And so she's great at presentations. She always was. Uh, She enjoys giving them. People enjoy seeing her present, uh, conversely. And uh, that's why she's in business school today. (laughs) That's awesome. And that is definitely all true as someone who knows her. What sort of strategies would you recommend for other moms wanting their daughters to become, you know, boss ladies? One of the things I always heard is that when your daughters are young, do not say you're so pretty. You need to say you're so smart. I heard that as advice once many years ago, and I think it's really solid advice. When you are telling your daughter, you look beautiful, sweetie, you look so pretty in that dress, they think their job is to be pretty. And I think that you really need to cultivate your job is to be intellectual so that you can be independent, defend yourself, stand up for yourself, get a good job one day. And that's what's primary. That's so, I love that so much. And actually it's funny, my dad shares that exact same belief and that sort of was his whole philosophy is he was always like, you can't just call her pretty, tell her she's smart because at the end of the day, like you want someone valuing, yeah, you want them valuing themselves on their brain and their accomplishments and what they're good at, not just, you know, how they appear. Your father is a hundred percent correct and I'm glad you had him. (laughs) Me as well. So going to my last question, this is my favorite question to ask on the podcast. I ask it in every episode. What do you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments? For me, that's an easy to answer question. I would answer that in two parts, one personally and then one business-wise. Personally, my greatest accomplishment is probably my daughter, Camille. She is so independent and intellectual and friendly and loving and kind. Other values that I also really admire and try to build and bolster, she is all of that. So on a personal side, she's certainly my greatest accomplishment. On the business side, 
I also know that that's an easy answer for me too. Like I said, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an editor. I wanted to be a professor and I wanted to be a lawyer. And I have not only been those three things, but I've also won awards in those three areas. When I was years ago, an editor, I was voted in 1997, one of the top 50 editors in the United States with that's awesome. Martha Stewart of Living Magazine with Atlanta Magazine with Car and Driver for winning in its area. I was one of the 50 and I thought, wow, I wanted to be an editor and now I'm an award-winning editor. Then years later, I became a professor. And years later, I won an award as instructor of the year at Georgia State University. And then years later in law, I won an award called a Super Lawyer Award in Georgia where your peers vote for you as being a great attorney and only 4% of people get a super lawyer award saying that you were in the top 4% of lawyers for Georgia. And so in each of the areas I have had as a career, I've won an award. And that makes me so proud, so proud that I've done well and worked hard in everything I do. That is amazing and the best note we could possibly end on. Thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Thank you, Olivia. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Boss Ladies. Check back next week for a new episode. Visit us at www.bossladiespodcast.com for more information about the show or follow us at Boss Ladies Podcast on Instagram. Rate, like, and follow the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Mm -hmm.